Amen. And the app will be open. We're not going to discuss this next Sunday at Easter. It's just not a time to do that. But the, weeks, uh, the week or two following, if you still want to give, you can give during the week or also um, next week after Easter, the following week as well. So thank you very much. Now, we're in a topic called the places of Easter. We've been talking about certain places, and we're going to do this for seven uh, talks. We talked about the upper room a couple of weeks ago, and Matthew McDaniel, thank you very much last week. Didn't he do a great job talking to us about Jerusalem and the city and the important side that Jesus really is interested in people? We know that, but we think, is he only interested in the church? Is he only interested in the kind of the big no? Jesus is interested in this world. Jesus is interested in the cities of the world, and Jerusalem was his city, and he was interested in it, even to the point of crying over it. What a great talk. Today, we're going to talk about the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll get to in just a moment. Then on Friday night, we'll be talking about Calvary. Obviously, it's Good Friday and the whole story of the cross and the crucifixion. And then next Sunday is the empty tomb and the other garden in the story, which is the garden tomb. And we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to go two more weeks afterwards to talk about the road Jesus walked after he rose from the dead and then the world that he wanted to continue to hear the message it's amazing. There were only a few followers of Christ at this point in time, and yet we know what has happened since. And why did that happen? And we're going to look at all those things. So today, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 18. Now, this story in the Garden of Gethsemane is in all four of the Gospels. And so I thought, how am I going to tell every piece of every part of this story when it's in four places and I have you moving all around? So I've decided to stay in one of the books. We're going to look at this story from the Gospel of John, from John's perspective of what occurs. But please understand, there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke's side of this as well. And so there's other details. And just like anyone who is at an event you look at certain details and someone else adds different details. And it's really, if you want a huge, complete aspect of this story, you've got to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But today we're only going to look at John chapter 18. And I'm going to do the talk in a series of six words, okay, to keep it real simple. Because I'm actually going to take us out of the garden and keep going with the story. And we're going to look at the entire part of chapter 18, because that really takes us up then to uh, what we'll do on Friday. So just to bring us up to date, where are we? Jesus, in the storyline, Jesus has just been in the upper room. He had just uh, instituted communion that we'll celebrate here in a few days. He gave a great sermon, and that's what we talked about two weeks ago, and then an incredible prayer. I think it's the most important prayer in the whole Bible, and maybe one of the most important prayers ever prayed, and then we talked about that last week, in, or two weeks ago in John chapter 17, and then the Bible says, John says, they left and went outside of the city. And so here's where we are now, verse, chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, all the words I just talked about two weeks ago and have just reiterated, he went out 
with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. The first word I want you to think about and to write down, it's the obvious word, the garden. Just remember the garden. Now, the garden was called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. Oil press, why? Because the whole part of that mountain across from Jerusalem, it was called the Mount of Olives. And so it was an olive press and there, and there was a garden there as well. Jesus usually stayed when he came to Jerusalem in a little town a couple miles away called Bethany, where Lazarus was from and Mary and Martha were from, and he usually stayed there. But this week, the week of Passion Week between today, Palm Sunday, what we celebrate Palm Sunday, and that Thursday night, he went back and forth in the city and out of the city. So instead of going all the way back to Bethany, he most likely with his disciples, <coughs> excuse me, camped out in Gethsemane. So they were on a hill, that's Jerusalem, actually a series of hills. They would go down to the brook called Kidron, which is in the Old Testament with Elijah, if you're familiar with some of those stories, I won't repeat them now. And then back up, on the east side, or facing east, on the Mount of Olives, and went into there. Now, olive trees last a long time, and people say, are the olive trees today the same olive trees as 2,000 years ago? The answer is no, but if you go to Gethsemane, there are 1,000-year-old trees there. It is just amazing to look at these olive trees. And one thing I've learned, I don't know if you know much about olives. I love olives, but I didn't know much about them. If you pick an olive from a tree, do not bite it. It's hard as a rock. You'll break your tooth because they put it in the brine and they put it in things to soften it up. Well, Bill, I don't know these things, so I'm pulling off in the garden of Gethsemane. Why not eat, a gar eat an olive out of it? You can't eat an olive. You've got to press them and you've got to do things to them and, and all the rest. And now, so I've learned my lesson as well. So just don't do it if you ever see an olive. They're green but I'm sure they're good once they're done. But he's there, and, that, and something happens there. Let's go to verse two. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now we know from the other stories that uh, Judas had gone and betrayed him for amount of silver, and all this was going on, and then he came with a cohort of, or consort, rather, of army people. Now, back then, there were two types of armies. There was the Roman army, the bad army, and then there was the religious army, which was kind of the good army in the eyes of everybody. That would be like the police. If we think of police versus army, the army were the Romans, the police, and we think of our modern day, were these guards that came. And there was a grouping of both that came. And so Judas comes, and I've always wondered this because <clears throat> they all knew Jesus was in Gethsemane. This was not unknown. He went back and forth every day. If, if they had spies in his group, so they knew where Jesus was and everybody knew what Jesus looked like. I mean, it was quite obvious because he had been preaching in the temple. He'd been preaching out on the colonnade. He'd been preaching on the streets. He'd been preaching on the byways. He'd been preaching in Jericho. Everybody knew what Jesus looked like. And yet, 
They wanted somebody to identify him exactly. Why? Because it was night, and though there were lanterns, it was very dark. We think of, you know, when we watch a movie at night, they have all this backlighting going on so you can see everybody's faces. Back then, you could only see silhouettes, so they wanted to make sure. Here it doesn't say it, but the second word I want you to write down is the word, the kiss. The kiss. Now, Judas, this is in the other three, not in this one, but Judas came and gave him a kiss. Now, can I tell you, this doesn't make sense to me. Because if I was about to betray the person I had followed and the person who claims to be the son of God, I would kind of go, there he is. Am I going to actually go up? Now, think of it. You guys are Americans like me, a lot of you. Those of you who are not from America understand what a male kiss to another male is in a proper sense. There may be improper ways of doing a kiss, but the proper way is they come up and they go like this. And in some cultures, and we're not sure back then if they would do it here and then do it here again. Some do it once, some do it twice, some do it three times. I uh, married into a Middle Eastern family, and I had so much confusion over this one <laughs> because you got to know how to turn your head. And if you don't turn your head right, it all goes bad fast. <laughs> it's like, it took a long time. I know how to do it now, and then COVID shows up, and you can't do it anymore. So I get it now, and I tell you what, it is so meaningful. Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss. And we all laughed as kids and go, oh, a holy kiss. No, a kiss is so important. It shows intimate friendship, companionship, community, fellowship, and you have to embrace. So you embrace the person and you give a kiss on the cheek. Can you imagine that you're about to betray and Jesus knows it, you would just think that Jesus would kind of give him that, you know, the Hulk squeeze and just kind of take the breath out of him. But Jesus didn't do any of that, right? He let him kiss him, and then he stepped back. Judas stepped back. It's an amazing picture of true betrayal. I mean, it's one thing to go, he's the bad guy, but it's another thing to go up and actually kiss him with the kiss of friendship that's so intimate. It's no more intimate that a man can be with a man in a legitimate way than the kiss on the cheek. And that's the, where the real betrayal comes. It's interesting. So let's continue with this kiss. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? I want you to underline that because we're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I'm in verse 5, Jesus said to them, I am he. Remember what I said a couple weeks ago about the I am? This is a direct reference back to Exodus chapter 3 and 4 when God Almighty said in that burning bush, when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And God said, I am who I am sent you. There's, there's no words that you can describe. He didn't say I'm the Messiah, I'm this. He just said, I am he. It's an amazing take back of that. And Judas who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to him, I am he, they threw back and fell to the ground. The power of words is amazing. So he, Jesus walks forward and says, I am he. And they all fall backwards. We don't even think of that. The power of, and not because 
he was roaring like a lion, but because the power of understanding that the Spirit of God is there, and he is there, and he is the Spirit of God, and they're all falling down. And can you imagine, they're all getting back up. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there. When Jesus, verse 6, said to them, I am he, they fell back. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? Now they're standing up. You got to, there's a little humor here that we Americans miss again. They're all on their backs. They're all on the, and now remember, a lot of them had armor on and all the chain and all the things like that. You just don't get up when you're down. You have to kind of walk your way up like a camel. You have to kind of get up and your sword and it's a little clumsy. Jesus could have run away at this point. We don't think that Jesus could have gotten away. Jesus didn't even need to call 10,000 angels to stop him. He could have just left because they're all on the ground and they're kind of working their way up. And of course, there's no guns, so everything's close. He could have left and gone into the darkness of the garden. He knew his way around. He could have been gone, but Jesus didn't go. He, He says again, whom do you seek? Now they're on the ground, they're lifting back up and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. If you seek me, let these men go. And this is a beautiful thing. Here Jesus is about to be taken for the most heinous weekend in the world history. And he's worried about these people that are not terribly alive right now. They've been sleeping, they've been doing things, they're good people, but not quite there. And he says, don't take them. And so they don't. These people pretty much disperse except for a couple of them. This was to fulfill the word that had been spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. None of them were taken at this point in time. Now, this is interesting. And you'll recall from our conversations earlier in the month, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut his ear off. The servant's name was Malchus. Now let's stop. We talked about Peter a couple of weeks ago. Here's Peter, who is um, very confident, very bold, very courageous, and no sense. (laughs) Right? Just no sense. He's confident without anything else. So much so, he confronted Jesus in the sermon I mentioned a little while ago. So two hours ago, he had confronted Jesus when Jesus said, I have to go away and the people are going to take me. And he says, no, they're not with me around. I'm going to be by your side. And remember what Jesus said? This is amazing. It's when he said it, it was probably eight o'clock at night. And he said, before morning, you're going to deny me three times. Well, they were heading back to the campsite. Now they're at the campsite. Now it's whatever, 10, 11 o'clock at night, maybe even midnight at this point. And now Peter has to show off that he meant what he said two hours ago. He pulls his sword and who does he swipe? He doesn't swipe one of the guards. He doesn't swipe one of the leaders. He doesn't swipe Judas. I would have cut Judas's head off. No, what does he do? He goes after a little servant. The servant who's probably standing there holding the lantern And he goes after the servant. Now, how courageous is that? And he doesn't even get his head off. He gets an ear. Sometimes our courage is misplaced, isn't it? Utterly misplaced. We'll come back to that. And we find out from the other gospels that Jesus does this cool miracle and just puts the ear back. You know, Peter, now's not the time. Put the thing away. 
we are not going to win this battle with swords. And then he's going to tell us later how we're going to win the battle. Wow. Verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheaf, and now let me give you the third word. Shall I not drink, and the third word is this, the cup. Write down the word, the cup, that the Father has given me. What is the cup? It's interesting. The cup, and you can use a lot of words with this, the cup is your destiny. The cup is your calling. The cup is what you've been made for. The cup is why you are here. If you want to look at from your life in, it's your life. Jesus was born to do what he was about to do over the next couple of hours. This is what he was born for. And this is the cup he has been given. And he's not going to let that cup go away. It's interesting. Every one of you has been given a cup. It's your life. Every one of you has been given a destiny, a calling. I know when I see people doing things within their calling, I look at Lisa Wanamaker, who I just met a couple of years ago, who runs City House. She was made for this. You go, when I see her doing that work, I go, you are made for this. I was not made to help women who are, I mean, I helped them, but she was made for this. And I look at someone else and I go, you were made for this. Every one of us was made for something, and what you were made for is different than what you were made for. Remember that movie, Chariots of Fire? Now, if you haven't been around a long time, I have a lot of friends that go, what is that movie? I tell you what, forget all the other movies you want to watch. Chariots of Fire is on, should be your first one. It's a fantastic movie. It's basically a story of a runner, a runner from Scotland in the 1920s, and he was a believer in Jesus Christ, And because of his conservative uh, roots, he couldn't run on Sunday and all kinds of things. Great storyline. But he said every time he runs or every time he ran, he felt the pleasure of God because God made him to run. And he was the fastest human at that time. And he would win every race. This came to play in our lives because here in Boca, When I bought, uh, my sister and I bought a house together before either of us were married, we bought a house together. I wish we bought 10 houses now, but we bought a house. And and the lady was an old lady and her brother, they were both um, widows and widowers, and the brother lived behind. And the brother, you know, this is in the 1970s, so he's very aged, he was in the race representing the United States in Paris in 1924 in the Olympics. He told me how that race went. I'm like, unbelievable. But Eric Little was not born just to run. That gave him pleasure. He was also born to share Jesus Christ. And that's the story that's not in the movie. The story that's not in the movie is that he went off to China in the 1920s and the 1930s and shared the gospel every day of his life and did it and ended up dying in an internment camp, in a Japanese internment camp, because they wanted to release him because he was famous. And he said, I'm not going to be released. Let the women be released. And then he ends up dying. But he knew what he was made for. My friends, you have been made for something. And we're going to talk about that over the next few weeks. Don't think you're just here and wondering. And those of you who are older go, why am I still here? As long as God gives you breath, you are here for a reason. 
And let me tell you, there are wrong things that you could be doing. And what Peter was doing was the wrong thing, but what Jesus was doing was the right thing, and that is doing what his father had told him. So the cup, so you have the garden, the kiss, the cup. Let's go to verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, just a quick geographic lesson. Jesus was in the upper room right near the temple in the, let's say, the northwest corner of Jerusalem. He leaves, goes down to the Kidron Valley, goes back up to the Mount of Olives, and there he is. He gets arrested, goes back down the Kidron Valley, back up to just literally probably one block or two blocks away from where he just was. Now, what's interesting is they found the home of Annas and Caiaphas. You can go there. If you, those of you who have come with us uh, to Jerusalem, and God willing, we'll be doing another trip as soon as all this thing clears up, and we'll let you know. But you can go into the home of the high priest in the early first century. It's an amazing picture there, and that's where Jesus was. And so what happens when he is there? Now, it says in verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept the door and brought Peter in, who kept watch of the door. Here's the picture. We think it's John, but I really don't think it's John. I think it's Nicodemus. And the reason I think it's Nicodemus is Nicodemus was a Pharisee. So Nicodemus knew the religious leaders, so he could just say, hey, I want to come in. I know I'm not a part of this, but I want to be in. And so we think it's Nicodemus. Could have been the apostle John, doesn't matter. But he goes in, and then he sends out for Peter to go in. Because there's kind of an inner court and an outer court there. But Peter stood outside the door. And so they asked him in, verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? So this girl knows that Peter is one of the disciples. Now what's interesting, the other guy who just spoke to her was one of his disciples as well. So there's two disciples standing next to this girl either Nicodemus or John, the girl, and then Peter. And you need to remember, this isn't a huge building. These are small buildings, so it might have been 10 feet away, 15 feet away. And there he is, and what does he say? I am not. What did Jesus say? I am he. Peter said, I am not. It's an amazing thing. Peter denies Christ, even with his buddy on the inside, he was just going to pass by and go inside with him and with, with his friend, and he couldn't do it. Excuse me. And he denies him. The servant girl, I am not. Verse 18, now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal, word number four, fire, the fire. Peter had been around the fire, had been listening to people, and realized there is a huge 
conspiracy against Jesus going on inside. He understood, you know, the guards know what goes on inside, and so they're all talking, and everybody's talking. Because it was cold and they were standing and warming, Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Let me pause here, because I have friends who are here that were with us in the last trip we went to Jerusalem. So the picture is this. It's all mosaic floors, beautiful tiled floors. There's an outdoor part of this. Then there's a little knee wall. Knee wall is probably this high. And then there's an inside. And so the door was most likely not a door with a big wall, with a big door. It could have been just a small gate door, a small gate that was taking from the outside to the inside. Peter's on the outside. Jesus and Nicodemus or on the inside. Peter denies Christ on the outside. He's there, he's, Christ is 20 feet away. And they're doing all this conversation, but Peter's here and Jesus is here. And the question I ask here, even before we finish is, where are you in the story? Are you on the outside looking in? Are you on the outside listening to people about the story of Jesus? or are you inside? You see, the disciple invited him to come inside, to be a part inside. He stayed outside because he was denying Christ. He was afraid of Christ. That courage turned into fear, didn't it? I tell you what, courage that is misplaced becomes fear very quickly. We're gonna talk about that at the end. So he's out there, and you've got a choice to make. Are you in or are you out? It's not, are you at the house? We're all at the house. But are you in with Jesus, or are you out just talking about Jesus? And when anything happens that makes it sound like you're really with Jesus, you kind of deny him. I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you. I'm just saying, Peter, one of the, right? Jesus said on this rock, you know, all these great things about Peter, the keys and all the rest, but Peter blew it. If Peter can blow it, you and I can blow it. The high priest questioned Jesus. The fifth word here is question. Questions. Now, there are a lot of questions go on here. Jesus asked the guard questions. The guard asked Jesus questions. The people asked Peter questions. Annas and Caiaphas are about to ask Jesus questions. The guard is going to ask Jesus questions. Jesus is going to ask the guard questions. Pilate, in a moment, is going to ask a question. Jesus is going to ask a question to Pilate. There are a lot of questions going on here but there are only a few answers. The most important question is, whom do you seek? The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me and what I've said. They know what I said when he had said these words the officer struck him with his hand saying, is this how you answer the high priest? This was not a scourge at this point. That's coming. We'll talk about that later in the week. This is just a slap. I think it was more than the Will Smith slap, but it was a slap. (laughs) Stay with me. 
is that how you answer the high priest? Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about what is wrong. But if I said of what is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent bound to Caiaphas, sent him bound to Caiaphas. Annas was the uh, former high priest. He was kind of the head guy. Caiaphas was his nephew. Caiaphas was the high priest of the year. Every year high priest changed. And so Caiaphas, the nephew, is the high priest. They were all in collusion here. Now, let me just pause because next week I probably won't say this, but I'm going to say it this week. Who killed Jesus eventually? And I've said this so many times. And over the years, we have, as Christians, and I'm talking over 2,000 years, not us over the last 20 years, over the last 2,000 years, we as Christians said the Jews killed him. And I got to tell you, well, partly you're right. Why? Because it's a Jewish story. If this story had been told in Norway, Norwegians would have killed them. If it had been told in the United States, it's a story in Israel. It's a story of Jews. Of course, Jews are part of this story, but the Jews did not kill Jesus. Because as I told you before, he either could have called 10,000 angels or he could have just walked into the darkness when he was into the garden and left. And if he had left Jerusalem, they would have never gotten him because he could have crossed the Jordan into another part of the world Jesus allowed himself to die. Yes, the Romans were a part of it. Yes, the guards were a part of it. Yes, the Jews were a part of it. And I've got to tell you, in part, you and I are a part of it too. Because Jesus died for all of our sins. Now, let's, let us not think that we're so good that Jesus was thinking of me that day. He had a lot more things to think about than me. But all of us are the cause of why Jesus died. So don't us ever point to a Jewish person who said, your people killed Jesus. Their people was a part of the story, but please understand that God came to save the world, not to worry about who killed him. Because ultimately it was the Romans who killed him. It was the Jews who delivered him up. So please be careful when you tell this story that this is a story about Jesus. It's not a story about who killed whom. Jesus was gonna die on the cross whether it was Jews or Herod or Pilate or the Romans, he was going to end up on that cross, and he did. Now, Simon Peter, verse 25, was standing and warming himself. As I said, he never went in. He's sitting there warming himself around that fire. And they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied him again, and he said the same words, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, you think they would know, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? So there were other people in that garden in the entourage coming besides army people and court soldiers. And Peter again denied him. And what happened? What Jesus prophesied six hours earlier occurred. At once a rooster crowed. Now, we know from other gospels what uh, Peter did and the sorrow that came, but the confidence that Peter had just six hours before and then just four hours before and just two hours before had melted away into fear. And utter fear from servant girls and other people saying it, because he, if he had said, yes, I am, I mean, he would, nothing would have happened to him because God wouldn't have let it happen. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. 
They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled because it was Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. And remember, they could have done that. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. What they meant by this is it's not lawful today to put anyone to death. It's Passover. They certainly can stone people. They've been stoning people for hundreds of years, if not thousands, for different sins. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now let's close with this. The last word, the the sixth word. The fifth word was questions. The last word is kingdom. Kingdom. Write down the word kingdom. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate said, am I a Jew? Your own nation, your own chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. We need to stop and realize that most of the people following Jesus at the feeding of the 5,000, all these great sermons he did, Sermon on the Mount and all this, thought that Jesus came to save them from the Romans, not to save them from their own sins. It was to be saved from the Romans. Now, Jesus says here, he did not come to save the people from the Romans, right? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If you weren't here or you're visiting, I did a whole series on two kingdoms a few months ago and talking about the kingdom of earth, which is this kingdom, and the kingdom of God that Christ came to bring. My kingdom is not of this world, verse 36, because if it was, they would be fighting for me. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Whom do you seek? was the first question asked in this series. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is the king. And we need to understand that so many people think of Jesus of Nazareth as a good teacher, a good person, a good leader, all those good things. But we do not serve Jesus of Nazareth. We serve Jesus, king of the world. I hope you understand that. And his purpose to come was, he said it right here, I was born for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And ultimately, this whole story ends with a question, an incredible question, what is truth? That is the question that people ask all the way down to today. And we can talk about a lot of things, what truth is, but can I tell you, what is truth? It's Jesus Christ. And he said it earlier that night when he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is the story 
that we're talking about. And this week, I want you to read the rest of the story because when we get to Good Friday, there'll be some things that will have already occurred, some scourging, some other conversations with Herod, and some other things will have happened. And then he is there to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And that is the story that is here in John chapter 18. What can we learn from this? Most of you are Christians, followers of Christ. Some of you are not, but most are. And certainly you have followed in the way for many years. Why was Peter so wrong with his confidence? He was so wrong because he did not attach humility to it. We need to have humility and confidence. There is a sense that nowadays I, I see the, the pendulum going this way. We have people who are very compassionate. I mean, we're even talking about compassionate ministries right now. We're all compassionate, want to help the poor, help the needy, help this, help that. Or we're out here screaming and yelling bloody murder about how bad the world is, right? And everybody's screaming and yelling. It's very uncivil what's going on. And we're using our Facebook accounts and our Instagram accounts and screaming and yelling at the way the world's going to hell. And somehow these two never meet. How do these come together? How does the humility that we've been called to and the confidence we've been called to, that unnamed disciple had both. He had confidence and he had humility. Let me give you an example why you need both. A couple of weeks ago, Elizabeth and I were coming back from a trip and it so happened our daughter was coming home for spring break and we didn't realize when we made tickets, but we were on the same plane. So we're on the same plane coming home She's sitting in another part of the airplane because we had different ticket numbers. So when we get to Fort Lauderdale, we get off the plane and we wait for her in the terminal. Now it's spring break in Fort Lauderdale. It was horrendous. It was packed, wall-to-wall people. It was just a terrible place. Fort Lauderdale's a bad place in a good day, airport. Uh, But it was packed. Then comes Anna. Now Anna is arm in arm with a lady, old enough to be my age. So they're walking along arm in arm, talking and laughing and having the time of their life, a lady I've never seen or met, and she's holding Anna's cell phone. And here they come, and she comes to us, hey, Dad, Mom, this is so-and-so. I just met her on the plane. We sat next to each other. We had the time of our life. She needs to make a call to call her children to get, um, to get them to pick her up. So I thought, okay. So we're walking through this very busy you know, they're all coming towards us and we're all going out. And uh, so we kind of get separated a little. We meet back out by the exit. And I wave goodbye to the lady and say, you know, down there's arrivals and your kids will pick you up. And we go off to the parking garage. And Anna's hugging this lady and all these great things. And so off we go. And Anna starts telling me the story of this lady. This lady had just been let out of prison after many years. And The Department of Corrections in the state from which we came from gave her a one-way ticket to Florida to be with her adult children. I don't think she had ever flown. She had certainly not had freedom for many, many years. So here she is in this busy place, and Anna, and I'm just so proud of my daughter showing humility and compassion and hope for this lady. And then the phone rings, and we're now in the parking garage as she's been telling us the stories we're walking along and it's her children, and they can't find their mother. And then it hit me. What this lady needed was not only compassion, but she needed confidence. 
She needed somebody who could walk her through that airport. And I know that airport as good as any human being. I've been going to that airport since I'm a kid, dozens of times a year. I know every door, every bathroom, every terminal, every gate, every restaurant. I know it all. And I was silent because I didn't know this lady needed help. I assumed she knew it all, and I just said, go that way. I could have taken five minutes, walked her downstairs through that labyrinth of all those, you know, what are they called, where all the luggage comes out, it's just horrendous, and then get her outside, name the door, because every door has a number, call her family and say, we're a door number such and such, I'll wait, I'm the tallest guy out there, you come, and you look for the tallest guy, and your mother will be right there. But I didn't. And you know, it was too late. We were way off in another building by that time. That lady needed humility of my daughter, but needed my confidence. You see, we as Christians need to be people of humility, but we need to be people who are confident, bold, and courageous because we do know the way. And we know who is the way. And yet, so many times we show humility without the confidence to tell people about Jesus Christ. My friends, it is good to be humble. It's good to be helpful. It's good to be compassionate, empathetic, sympathetic, all those great things. But if you don't do it in the name of Jesus and tell people about Jesus, what good is it? And this story at Easter is about telling people about Jesus but doing it juxtaposed with humility. Because people don't need our fingers, our condemnation. What they need is Jesus. Let Jesus condemn them. Let Jesus rise them up. Let Jesus help them. But my friends, do not be afraid this week, of all weeks of the year, to share your faith, share Jesus Christ with someone else. And do it in confidence. Do not be ashamed of the gospel that is in you. Amen? Amen. Now, our time is up. So we've got to go out there and buy some windows. But before we do, I want to pray for you. I want you to think, every one of you who is a follower of Jesus Christ and will commit with me, with me, I'm standing, with me to stand and say, By God's power, I'm going to share Jesus Christ to someone else, with someone else, whomever, a family, an individual, this week. Between now and Easter 9 or Easter 11 o'clock next week, if you are willing to say, I'm going to do it. Now, don't say, if God provides somebody in front of me, because that's mocking God. This is not about God it is about God, but it's not about, you know, nobody came in front of me. Well, there are people in front of you every single day. You just don't know it. Would you be willing to share Jesus Christ this week? Stand up right now. Don't stand if you won't. I'm not going to condemn you if you said, but I want to know who's with me this week because I want you praying for me and I'm going to be praying for you. So every person who's standing is going to pray and then also just share Jesus Christ. That's all it is. And if you're not standing, that's okay. So let's pause right now and pray. Father, I thank you for each person in this room. What an exciting day of singing and praising and seeing baptisms and seeing uh, the future of City House grow. 
But Father, each person who is standing here, and there's people at home standing that want to share your son Jesus Christ with someone, wants to share our faith, your life with other people this week. I pray you would give us wisdom. I pray you'd give us opportunity. And I pray we would take that opportunity to do that this very week. I pray that there'd be stories of encouragement next week as people come back and said, I did it, I tried. They accepted, they didn't accept, whatever the case may be. Father, we give the results to you, but we ask you to let us be the vessels, the voices of what you do. And we thank you so much for that. And just before we close, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, today is the day to do it. The Bible says, believe on Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. This whole thing about Easter, this whole thing about Jesus coming to die is because we have lost relationship with the Father through our sin. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is Jesus Christ and gives us eternal life. And that is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. If you'd like to come to Jesus, you can pray that. You can also come down after we sing a closing song. And in that time, the people down here would love to pray with you, to talk with you, and to share with you. Thank you, Father, for all you've done today. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody look here. Make it a great week. Can you imagine there's going to be a thousand people sharing Jesus in Boca Raton? That may never have happened before in the life of this city. So I'm excited to see what happens across this town this week. Make it a great week.